Hey, podcast family, welcome back to Clinical Pearls. In this episode, we're going to cover a soon-to-be-released brand-new SMFM console series number 68 that covers sickle cell disease in pregnancy. Like in every other part of obstetrics, a lot of stuff has changed with sickle cell management during pregnancy. When I was a resident, it was just universal. It was no questions asked. Every sickle cell patient just had prophylactic transfusions at least once a trimester to try to prevent a crisis. Well, is that still a thing? We're going to talk about it in this episode. We're also going to talk about hydroxyurea, about antepartum fetal surveillance, when these patients should be delivered, and what about VTE prophylaxis. We're going to talk about all of this and more. So get ready as we cover the brand new, soon to be released SMFM console series number 68, covering sickle cell disease and pregnancy. All right, here we go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I know I've mentioned this in past episodes, but I really do feel for for patients who are are born with with some condition, some congenital affliction that um, look they, they had no say in, right? I mean, it's 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 genetics, and so when they're born, like, hey, I'm ready to go. Oh, by the way, uh, here's here's your little uh, uh, thorn in your side for the remainder of your life. Uh, I just feel for them. Uh, not that I, I don't feel when somebody has a self-inflicted issue. I mean, there's obviously addictions. You know, there's there's consequences to bad decisions. I get that. And people end up in, in bad scenarios based on their own, uh, you know, bad decisions. I get that. And I feel for them as well. But it's a different kind of empathy for anybody, males or females, uh, who are just born with something congenital that, you know, they didn't sign up for. It's just, you know, it is what it is. And and so I really do feel for them. Now, yes, there's a lot of different afflictions that people can have. I mean, there's lupus, uh, but usually that manifests later on in life. Uh, and, and with a variety of symptoms, of course, there's there's a bunch of autoimmune things, right? I'm not just singling out sickle cell. But, but I just, you got to think, man, you know, Things that we take for granted. We all got issues. We all got problems, right? That's life the way it is. Sometimes you're at the top of the mountain. Sometimes you're, you know, down in the trench. That's that's life. Um, and things that we take for granted. Like, I always think about this, man. Look, I at least I'm not in the hospital. I'm not connected to some IV with chemo. Uh, you know, my kids aren't in prison. They're not. Uh, I'm not visiting them in rehab. Do you see what I mean? I mean, there's there's all these things that. Man, it could always be worse. And we're not going through life with vaso-occlusive crises or not knowing when the next one is, is uh, around the corner because of sickle cell. I mean, just things that take, we take for granted. Um, yes, there's real aches and pains. I'm not trying to minimize anybody's sorrows. I'm just saying, 
man, just be thankful. There's always something to be thankful for. And with sickle cell, I mean, this is a real deal because things have gotten better. I mean, remarkably better over the decades. But you know what the median life expectancy is for, for somebody with sickle cell in current time? Like not in the 80s, not in the 90s, but right around now, the current life expectancy according to published data, it's much better. It's about 58 years of age. That is the median, not the max, all right? It's not the end, but the median life expectancy is 58. And that is a, a vast improvement. I mean, it's great with all the advances that we've had and, and early screening and uh, things like hydroxyurea that can keep disease activity at bay. We're going to talk about that. There's, of course, penicillin prophylaxis for children born with uh, sickle cell disease. So we definitely have made big strides in this. But it has to be said again that the median life expectancy right now for a patient with sickle cell disease is about 58. So think about that. As, as we all complain about stuff and it's easy to do, the median life expectancy, 58. And, and that's something that really should, should generate some kind of empathy or at least compassion for patients with sickle cell. Now let's drop the first clinical pearl. Here it is. Sickle cell disease is the most common inherited autosomal recessive hemoglobinopathy, and it has a lot of clinical morbidity, all right? We already talked about the median life expectancy, but this is the most common autosomal recessive hemoglobinopathy that gives patients, not just in pregnancy, but just patients overall, increased morbidity and mortality. And yeah, of course, this is a big deal, as you would guess, in pregnancy. Remember, here's a little bit of basic science, that sickle cell disease occurs because of one single amino acid change. Now, let's go back. We all learned this in, in genetics and, and physiology. And you're like, yeah, okay, I memorized that, right? Single amino acid change. You get it. It's, it's the change of glutamic acid to valine. I got it. Okay, fine. No, look how precise that is. Y'all get that one stinking amino acid in that darn beta-globin chain changes the entire structure here. So it's a single amino acid change of glutamic acid to valine in the beta-globin subunit of hemoglobin that is the basic origin of this condition. Now remember that it takes two to tangle here, all right? So if somebody is considered a trait carrier and they have a child with somebody else who also has the trait, then they pass on that that. A probability of that offspring then having the condition. So if two unaffected carriers of an S allele, in other words, they're both sickle cell traits, here's a percentage of breakdown of what they can pass on to the child. Remember, we're talking about two unaffected carriers. So two people each with sickle cell trait, they have a 25% chance of having a child that has absolutely nothing, right? Not a trait, not affected. So that's one in four. They have a two out of four chance or 50% chance of the child having the trait, all right? So that's 50% chance that the kid's going to have the trait. And then the last fourth, the 25% that remains, is that the child can actually have sickle cell disease, okay? So remember, that's basic genetics. That's how autosomal recessive stuff works, right? Two members uh, have a trait. Then it's one out of four who have nothing, one out of four who actually have the condition, and then the 50%, the two out of four, actually have the chance of having the trait, now that ACOG has pushed for and endorsed universal hemoglobinopathy screening, whether it's electro, uh, electrophoresis or molecular testing, 
uh, you're going to find patients with some kind of hemoglobinopathy, and it may be sickle cell trait. And it may be the first time that they've ever known that, that they've actually been screened for. Because remember, traits are, in general, asymptomatic. And if the patient is found to be a trait carrier, you've got to screen the partner, all right? Now, as a quick little tidbit, I posted today on our Clinical Pearls uh, Facebook page, the importance of 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 actually doing both, right? The hemoglobin electrophoresis as a phenotypic expression of, of whatever's going on at the genetic level, and then getting the maternal screening on the DNA basis. And the reason you want to do that is because hemoglobin electrophoresis can sometimes miss a very specific form of hemoglobinopathy, which is alpha-thal. All right, so I posted a picture today where the uh, Horizon maternal screen showed, oh, alpha-thal carrier also ended up having a, a SMA carrier as well. Uh, she was a trait for SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, but the hemoglobin electrophoresis was stone cold normal, all right? And I have an episode on this. Remember, you can go back and it's exactly this question is, hey, should we do hemoglobin electrophoresis or uh, genetic screening uh, for hemoglobin, um, hemoglobinopathies, hemoglobin pathologies? And the answer is yes. That's right. At least do one, do something, and they can actually be a complement of each other because the genetic component, then you can see if its manifestation on the electrophoresis side. And if you just do electrophoresis, you can potentially miss uh, alpha-thal, all right? So to be very clear, ACOG says, hey, you, you can pick one. I mean, either do a hemoglobin electrophoresis or a genetic testing, even though it does recognize that you don't even have to be that fancy. That is my preference. Most uh, um, clinical uh, experts, most data-driven uh, 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 folks say that's the, the way to go. But there's nothing wrong. There's, there, you, you can be okay for sickle cell disease specifically if you get a CBC with indices uh, and you do uh, just regular old hemoglobin electrophoresis, you should be able to pick up sickle cell disease, all right? But that's that's all you're looking for. If you want to see everything else and what the maternal carrier status of other conditions could can be, because you're already going to look for cystic fibrosis and SMA, right? Then may as well throw in maternal genetic screening as well. So the short answer is, do I like hemoglobin electrophoresis or maternal DNA screening? The answer is yes. I like them both because they're looking at different things. The genetic screen is looking at the genetic basis, hemoglobin electrophoresis, looking at the phenotypic expression of that. And again, I've covered that on a separate episode. But this uh, current cons uh, clinical consensus statement number 68 does just remind us of that, that it is now universal. And if you didn't know that, my goodness, and you know, I'm glad you heard it now, but it's been a thing for a while that is no longer race-based, but hemoglobin electrophoresis screening, I'm sorry, hemoglobinopathy screening uh, should be universal with either hemoglobin electrophoresis or molecular testing. Oh man, we've got lots to cover here, but before we do, let's get into just a little tad touch, just a little whiff, just a little sprinkle of the history of sickle cell disease, because it, again, truly amazing. So again, fair warning, here's our little history component. Pop, pop, pop. Please don't do this to me. Make him stop. Make him stop. Stop it. Stop it. Oh, my goodness. I just can't help it. Okay, very quickly. Listen, let's just do this very fast, rapid fire style. 1910. 1910. This is the first time 
that one physician out of Chicago, how about that, the Windy City, one Chicago physician publishes a medical paper about a blood sample in a student, right, a 20-year-old student from Granada who had this severe weird pain. It was just nonspecific. Um, and he drew a blood and took a look under the microscope and said, hey, there's some weird crescent-shaped cells here, some sickle-shaped uh, cells, and I'm not sure what is happening here. Uh, and he also seems to have a lot of anemia, right? There seemed to be a, a lack of red blood cells, 1910. So that's the first time that the words sickle-shaped or crescent-shaped red cells cells are described 1910 and then in 1927 just 17 years later more progress an indiana surgeon and an intern discover that that a lack of oxygen actually is the causative agent causing these cells to sickle. And so now we get into this idea that there's some kind of oxidative stress, uh, that when there's low oxygen tension, that that can trigger whatever's going on, causing these patients pain. In 1949, sickle cell was first named as a molecular disease, having, in other words, a DNA basis. And then, of course, in 1957, so guys, 47 years after it was first described, in 1957, the cause of sickle cell was now determined. And this now came from England. So from the U.S. to England over a period of really of about 47 years, we go from this first description to, hey, there's something wrong with oxygen. Oh, it's in the DNA. Oh, my goodness. I, and then we, we get this idea of uh, we think we know what's going on on a, uh, on a genetic slash molecular level. And it has to do with this genetic substitution uh, in, in part of hemoglobin. Wild, huh? So again, a lot of progress. I know it seems like 47 years, man, it took a long time. Not really when you consider the technology that was there. I mean, what technology do you have? Um, and think about it, from, from never hearing it at all to now we get uh, the cause of sickle cell uh, actually determined, I think that's remarkable. See, isn't that history amazing? 1910, so thank you to that first Chicago physician who first published that in one student, an N of one, who was 20 years old in a sickle crisis. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Clinically, the way that sickle cell disease manifests are, of course, these painful crises, right? These vaso-occlusive acute pain syndromes. Vaso-occlusion and chronic hemolysis are at the heart of the pathophysiology uh, in the manifestation, the phenotypic expression of this genetic abnormality. This also leads to endothelial dysfunction and a chronic inflammatory condition. So yes, it, it, the vaso-occlusive crises are definitely caused by the abnormal shape of the red blood cells, but it's deeper than that, all right? See, I learned oh, it's just that they're a weird shape, so they don't flow right in the in the vessels, so they just cause this weird occlusion, and that's it. No, no, no. There's all this tie-in into the vascular system, the vasculature. It does lead to endothelial dysfunction and this chronic inflammatory state. 
when these vasooclusive events results in tissue ischemia, then that's what we call that vasooclusive crisis or the patient's in a crisis or in an acute painful episode. And it's real and they cannot be brushed aside as malingering or faking or whatever because I've heard weird stuff out there. This thing hurts, guys, and it has a lot of morbidity. Isolated vasoocclusive events are characterized by pain without evidence of organ dysfunction, and that's called an uncomplicated episode, all right? So it's an uncomplicated VOC, vasoocclusive uh, condition. Now, if there is a vasoocclusive event and there's end organ damage, meaning there's uh, a bump in uh, liver enzymes or there's evidence of of cardiac dysfunction or of, of pulmonary injury, anything that has acute organ and organ complication, that's called a complicated VOC, all right? So you have a pain episode. All right, is it just ischemia or are you actually bumping some kind of enzyme or getting some kind of true tissue uh, damage, all right? So it's either isolated, meaning it's just pain without evidence of organ dysfunction, or is it complicated, which is the same vasoocclusive condition, but now with a complication of some kind of, of end organ pathology. And one of the most critical here uh, for end organ pathology is acute chest syndrome. It can also be stroke or it can be a hepatic infarct. It can be something with the spleen. It can be osteomyelitis. Those are all forms of a complicated vasoocclusive episode, right? But acute chest syndrome, we're going to talk about in a minute. But the short of it is in any patient who presents with low O2 sats, chest pain, dyspnea, uh, a new a pulmonary infiltrate, you have to consider acute chest syndrome uh, because it, it has a lot of morbidity. And just remember, as one of the clinical pearls right here, acute chest syndrome or ACS with sickle cell, yeah, that's pretty bad. So this is how impactful this is, okay? Acute chest syndrome and pneumonia occur in about 6.5% of pregnant women with sickle cell disease, with pulmonary causes leading to 88% of maternal deaths in patients with sickle cell. So if you're ever asked, what is the most likely thing to get a sickle cell patient, specifically in pregnancy, that's acute chest syndrome, ACS, 88% of maternal deaths have some kind of pulmonary etiology and ACS is part of that complex, okay? And patients don't have to have just ACS for something to go haywire in pregnancy. I mean, being pregnant with sickle cell disease automatically increases morbidity and mortality compared to patients without the condition. So this is true, legit, high-risk uh, pregnancy. It's high-risk obstetrics. They're also at risk for preeclampsia, eclampsia, C-section, abruption, uh, preterm labor. So anything that you could think of, uh, I wonder if they're at risk for that. Yeah, pretty much. They're also at risk for VTE during inpatient admissions, definitely after C-section, and even after vaginal deliveries. We're going to touch on VTE prophylaxis in a minute, but as you can guess, as it kind of sounds like, um, yeah, you should at least consider uh, pharmacological uh, prophylaxis after vaginal delivery and after C-section, at least SCDs, with the most conservative being adding pharmacological prophylaxis as well. Well, I said I was going to talk about it later, but I kind of threw that in there for now. But we, we will get a little bit more into details in just a minute. But yes, the idea is uh, pharmacological prophylaxis for VTE postpartum 
uh, is is at least worth considering. It's not a strong recommendation, but at least consider after vaginal delivery and after C-section. Yeah, that's pretty much a good idea in addition to SCDs. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. Okay, hold on, hold on, everybody, hold on for a minute. Everybody breathe because it sounds very doom and gloom, right? And I don't want it to, to, to just paint it that way. Yes, it's high risk. Yes, you've got to be on alert. Yes, it, they need and deserve a lot of attention. However, as SMFM says, quote, most pregnant patients will have a successful pregnancy outcome, end quote, but there are certain groups of sickle cell patients where you want to talk to them before pregnancy and say, look, uh, if you have one of these two conditions, please try not to get pregnant, Uh, like don't get pregnant because uh, you could die. Okay, did you all hear that? Like, you could die. It increases the risk of maternal death. And those are two very specific conditions. Patients with sickle cell with pre-existing pulmonary hypertension and those with pre-existing and significant cardiomyopathies, those are considered, according to the World Health Organization, as class 4 diseases, which are contraindications to pregnancy. Okay, so if you're asked, hey, can patients with sickle cell get pregnant? Of course, for sure. And most are going to do just fine with, you know, some close observation and, and, a, and a lot of supervision. And we're going to talk about medications in a minute and aspirin uh, and VT prophylaxis and surveillance. So there you go. I've just spilled the beans on everything. Uh, but we'll, even though we're going to go into a lot more detail in a minute, ex- uh, unless they have these two conditions, pulmonary hypertension. Significant cardiomyopathies, pulmonary hypertension, and significant cardiomyopathies. Those are class four, aka contraindications to pregnancy. Well, since we mentioned counseling the patient uh, regarding pregnancy, this is also the time, ideally preconception, to do some baseline evals, right? So baseline evaluations include looking for anemia, looking for iron stores, um, seeing if there's any alloimmunizations, looking for end organ dysfunction, doing things before pregnancy, assuming they don't have those two class four contraindications, uh, to really get maximization of their condition. Uh, before pregnancy, all right? So yes, these patients can absolutely get pregnant. They just need ideally some some pre-pregnancy labs. And unfortunately, in my patient population, that doesn't happen very often. Sometimes it does, but but not a lot. Um, and, and if they already have sickle cell disease and they get pregnant, then it's super important to assess the, the risk of the child having it, which is where the partner comes in. Okay, so the partner has to be screened. And of course, if the mom has it and the partner has the trait, obviously that increases even more the chance of passing the actual condition, sickle cell disease, to the child. And even though there's cell-free DNA tests that can give the fetal risk of sickle cell disease, and that's commercially available right now, SMFM states, you know what, we just don't want to recommend that right now because they really haven't been validated. So the best way to check for that, of course, is through a direct genetic test of the child and cell-free DNA screening for the fetus for sickle cell disease is commercially available, but SMFM states, quote, it is not currently recommended in pregnancy, end quote. And a lot has to do with the, the, the accuracy of the test. But if the patient still desires that and knows the limitations and it ends up with a positive cell-free DNA screen for sickle cell disease, then you still need a confirmation, a diagnostic test to see if that's the case or not, right? Remember, all cell-free DNA is screening. They're very good at screening, but none of those are diagnostic. 
All right, everyone, if you can't figure out where we're at, we kind of talked about preconception and then, oh, okay, well, you got pregnant. All right, let's figure out the child is affected. So this is now early conception care. And part of early conception care, of course, is getting the team together. So it should be with hematology, MFM, uh, the general obstetrician, of course, pulmonology, if there's pulmonary issues. The, the whole take home here is this is a, a, a team sport, right? Sickle cell disease in pregnancy is a team sport. And you got to remind patients who have sickle cell disease because they have high turnover requirements for RBC production that they require increased folic acid, all right? So the 0.4 milligrams is not enough here. It's four milligrams of folic acid, just like in, in, in mothers who have a previous child with a, a neural tube defect. It is four milligrams of folic acid, right? That's the amount that's recommended with sickle cell disease, four milligrams. And try not to include iron in the prenatal vitamin unless there's iron deficiency by ferritin uh, and iron and total iron binding capacity, right? You want to you protect them from iron exposure in case they need uh, transfusions because they're likely to have had a transfusion already, okay? So part of this early preconception pre uh, care is those baseline labs, looking for alloimmunization, uh, getting those iron studies, and then telling them, hey, rather than taking a general prenatal vitamin, for you, you really need folic acid at about four milligrams of folic acid uh, per day because you, your body needs that for a good red blood cell production. Uh, and also remember that these patients, and we just did this in a separate episode, these patients also tend to be vitamin D deficient. So this is one of the cases where screening for vitamin D uh, is a good is a good thing. All right, we talked about the the last episode is is vitamin D screening in pregnancy. Should that be universal or targeted? So you got to go back and listen to that one. But let me read you the exact quote from SMFM because vitamin D deficiency in sickle cell patients is a big deal. Quote, patients with sickle cell disease have an increased risk for vitamin D deficiency. Therefore, checking a baseline vitamin D level is suggested and repletion of vitamin D at 1,000 to 2,000 international units daily appears safe in pregnancy, end quote. Oh, and before we get into ultrasounds, of course, it makes sense. These patients, as we've already mentioned, are at risk of a variety of complications, including preeclampsia. So these are patients that do qualify for low-dose aspirin starting, again, as early as 12 weeks. So as we're talking about patients starting prenatal care, then remember that they do qualify for low-dose aspirin for preeclampsia prevention. All right, as we're talking about getting the patient plugged into prenatal care, remember that an early ultrasound that can confirm or redate a pregnancy is vital, all right? You got to know the EGA here. So ideally, they present at a time where an early ultrasound can confirm or change in EDC. Then it's recommended, of course, to do a routine anatomical survey anywhere between 18 and 22 weeks, especially for those that have been on some, quote, concerning medication, end quote. We'll talk about that in a minute. And basically, because these patients are at risk for fetal growth restriction, then it's a good idea to do serial rate of growth ultrasounds every month, beginning in the third trimester, all right? So 28 weeks onward, then begin fetal growth surveillance. So early ultrasound, check anatomy, and then a rate of growth ultrasounds every four weeks because of the higher rate of fetal growth restriction in these pregnancies. 
Now that we're talking about the third trimester, let's talk a little bit about antepartum fetal surveillance. Because while most of the data definitely supports antepartum fetal surveillance for typical indications, including fetal fetal growth restriction, it's unknown if the appropriately growing fetus in a patient with sickle cell, if, if there's real value in antepartum surveillance there or not, right? So that's the unknown. So do you do surveillance in a patient with sickle cell? Well, is there some other comorbid condition going on, like fetal growth restriction? Then yes. Like, preeclampsia, then yes. Like diabetes, then follow follow those guidelines, okay? But for patients with otherwise uncomplicated sickle cell disease with an appropriately growing fetus, the data is, is less clear. Nonetheless, because these patients are at high risk and in some studies do have an independent uh, higher uh, relative risk of stillbirth, SMFM says that even in the normally grown fetus, It is totally okay, and SMFM does suggest weekly or twice-weekly antepartum testing starting at 32 or 34 weeks. Now, if something else happens uh, where they get fetal growth restriction uh, or they have a severe preeclampsia that's found earlier than that, then obviously start at a gestational age that would uh, be... Uh, amendable to delivery if you find something that's off, all right? But in general, in the appropriately growing fetus with sickle cell, uh, yes, you can do antepartum fetal surveillance, even though we're not sure if if that really prevents stillbirth or not, in the absence of fetal growth restriction. But nonetheless, it's still considered acceptable beginning at 32 to 34 weeks or earlier if you would actually act on it if something is abnormal. All right, so that's the basic framework. That's the basic house of prenatal care. But what happens if a patient gets a vasoocclusive uh, condition, a VOC, a vasoocclusive crisis? Well, it's just like in any other patient that the standard care for a VOC, a vasoocclusive crisis, is to give IV fluid hydration to try to prevent tissue ischemia, give analgetic pain medications, uh, and if they require oxygen uh, support, then supplemental oxygen can definitely be considered, especially because in pregnancy, uh, the threshold of when to give oxygen is much lower, right? Because uh, we know that in this condition, even though oxygen oxygen really doesn't help intrapartum for fetal heart rate D-cells, this is a true oxygen-carrying capacity defect, right? So this is where if mom has lower oxygen sats, then definitely uh, consider giving the mother oxygen. That's definitely supportive as part of a vasoocclusive crisis uh, management. And remember, guys, that for an active pain crisis, packed red blood cells of blood transfusion is part of the management, okay? So it's one thing to get prophylactically, which we'll talk about in a minute, but for an acute pain crisis, blood transfusion, a packed red blood cell, to decrease the fraction of hemoglobin S, ideally to less than 30%, uh, is definitely legit, all right? So IV fluids, O2 sat, Look for an offending cause, look for infection, see what triggered this crisis. Administer broad spectrum antibiotics until you try to figure out the etiology. That's totally okay to do uh, because you got to get ahead of this. And a special word about. Um, acute chest syndrome because we talked about this because this is one of the things that has high morbidity and potentially mortality uh, in pregnancy. 
So acute chest syndrome, remember, quote, according to this document we're looking at right now, is a leading cause of death among patients with sickle cell disease, end quote. So I told you before, ACS is bad, all right? ACS is diagnosed, according to the SMFM, by imaging findings consistent with a new pulmonary infiltrate and one additional item. Now, that can include a oxygen desaturation that's different than baseline, new onset cough, temperature greater than 101, tachypnea, or wheezing. All right, so be on, be on the, uh, have that on the top of your differential and call pulmonology, call a hematologist, call somebody with uh, expertise in, in sickle cell and start those antibiotics quickly until you see what's going on. So ACS is diagnosed with a chest x-ray and that one additional clinical finding, low O2 sat, temperature, either tachypnea or wheezing. So acute chest syndrome in pregnancy and outside of pregnancy is a real morbid and potentially a fatal condition with sickle cell disease. Now, to be the most accurate, a quick word about supplemental oxygen, because they do make a point in this clinical console series that just because you have a sickle cell crisis doesn't mean that they automatically need O2, right? That's not the case. But obviously, if your O2 sat is less than 95, then go ahead and give it. Now, that's a little bit different than somebody who's not pregnant, right? So if they're not pregnant, sometimes you can wait a little bit, 92, 93. Um, but at 95 for pregnancy, that should trigger supplemental oxygen, right? And, and along with hydration to try to increase oxygen-carrying ability and try to decrease the vaso-occlusive event. Now, talking about IV fluids, because that is key, IV fluids uh, is the way to go. If the patient can tolerate oral fluids, oral fluids are is definitely okay as well. You just got to get a lot of fluids down quickly. And remember that the kind of IV fluid to order is nothing fancy, just regular old isotonic IV uh, or isotonic oral fluids are the preferred agents here, right? No hypertonic fluids, just regular isotonic IV or oral fluids. For the blood transfusion part of management, it's either one to two units of packed red blood cells. And remember that transfusions are absolutely indicated for any acute event of sickle cell disease, whether that's stroke, acute chest syndrome, uh, and sometimes it, it is part of a vaso-occlusive episode, but not always, okay? So if there's end organ issue, stroke like or ACS, yes, and that definitely needs a, a transfusion of one to two units of packed red blood cells. But if it is a uncomplicated vaso-occlusive episode, sometimes you can get by with IV fluids, pain medication, and supplemental oxygen if needed, all right? So it depends on the severity of the vaso-occlusive episode, all right? So transfusion of one to two units packed red blood cells definitely uh, is necessary for stroke because you need increased oxygen carrying capacity there. And again, we mentioned the severity of acute chest syndrome. All right, podcast family, this is why you've got to work closely with your pulmonologist, with a hematologist, with MFM, because if it's a severe episode, we're talking about, again, acute ischemic stroke, severe ACS, or any kind of acute hypoxic respiratory failure, and especially if there's multi-system organ failure, giving one to two units of packed red blood cells, you all get that, right? That's not enough. I mean, these patients may need exchange transfusions, and of course, that's 
that you need somebody with extreme uh, expertise in that area. So if you're asked, hey, do patients with ACS sometimes need a blood transfusion? Yes. And if they're very sick, then they may need an exchange transfusion. And so just remember that, put that in a context that, yes, exchanging, uh, giving the patient good blood, not sickle to blood is great, but sometimes it may need to be in, in the form of an exchange transfusion. All right, since we're talking about blood, let's talk about something we mentioned in the intro. I trained with prophylactic blood transfusions during pregnancy for patients with sickle cell. We're trying to keep uh, the percent of good hemoglobin, uh, hemoglobin A up and percent of, of hemoglobin S, uh, the sickled uh, hemoglobin down, all right? But this has changed because as SMFM reminds us, there was a Cochrane review in 2016, guys, that said, quote, prophylactic blood transfusions to pregnant women with sickle cell anemia confers no clear clinical benefit when compared with selective transfusion, end quote. All right, so that's a little different, right? So that is a Cochrane review. However, the ASH, which is the American Society of Hematology, actually said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Cochrane. Let's not just throw everybody out because we should really consider transfusion in pregnancy based on these conditions. So Cochrane said prophylactic uh, transfusion in pregnancy, not a thing. The ASH said, well, consider it in these cases. So here we go. Here's the following cases according to the American Society of Hematology. First, it states, there's insufficient evidence to recommend a strategy of prophylactic transfusion rather than standard care. All right, so that sounds just like Cochrane. That's good. But then it states that prophylactic transfusion at regular intervals starting at the onset of pregnancy, yeah, you may actually be able to consider that if the patient meets certain high-risk issues, which is a history of severe sickle cell crisis in previous pregnancies, um, has a history of acute chest syndrome, or has other related comorbidities, right? So it kind of said, yeah, Cochrane, we get that. It, it's, it's not uniform, but it may be considered in these cases. Number one, basically very brittle, like we talk about brittle diabetics, well, very brittle sickle cell uh, patients uh, and or patients who have additional high-risk conditions, right? That makes sense. The other condition that the American Society of Hematology stated is that in, in those women who develop any sickle cell-related complication during that current pregnancy, of course, they would benefit from initiating regular transfusions to make sure they don't have a relapse, Everybody good? So 2016, Cochrane says, I don't know, prophylactic transfusion is probably not a thing. But then the American Society of Hematology says, okay, we agree with that in general, but in patients who are otherwise brittle, uh, have had decompensations in previous pregnancy, those who have current complications, uh, and those who have an acute sickle cell crisis in order to prevent them from having another one. So in other words, all they got, they, they get one chance. And if they fail that one chance because they get an episode during pregnancy, then the American Society of Hematology says you could consider starting regular transfusions to try to prevent a recurrence. All right. All that makes sense. However, nothing is nothing is free. There's always risks and the risk of alloimmunization, the potential risk of infection. All of these things are real and iron overload. So SMFM says, wow. We got a lot to consider here. What's going to be the statement? Well, here's the statement from SMFM. Quote, 
we suggest that the use of prophylactic transfusion be individualized for high-risk patients with sickle cell in accordance with the ASH. So they give a nod to American Society of Hematology, says, yes, well, we agree with that. Uh, and that it also be directed by a hematologist and SMFM a subspecialist in, quote, shared decision-making, end quote, with the patient. So you see how that's different than I trained? Because I told you at the intro, it was it was hands down, it wasn't discussed, it wasn't questionable, it was, you're pregnant with sickle cell, you're going to get prophylactic transfusions. Now it's, well, maybe it doesn't belong to everybody. Maybe it should be for high-risk patients uh, in conjunction with a hematologist, for those who have an acute event, and for those who have sh shown signs of previous decompensations in previous pregnancy, then that's something that can be considered. Okay, so that makes sense. So is universal prophylactic transfusion a thing for sickle cell in pregnancy? No, we should try to restrict it uh, to those high-risk patients. And that also preserves our blood supply and decreases the chance of alloimmunization in the patient and decreases the risk of potential iron overload. Okay, we got to keep moving and we're almost at the end. Hang in there, guys, because I just want to talk about hydroxyurea and then we have to talk about BTE prophylaxis and that's very quick because I've kind of already spilled the beans on that one, okay? Now, I always got these two confused, hydroxyurea and hydrochloroquine. They're totally different and for whatever reason, my mind always switched which one goes to what, okay? Hydroxychloroquine HCQ is totally different. That's typically for lupus. I mean, it's used for a lot of things, but we have a recent episode. Remember, we talked about lupus in pregnancy. And uh, hydrochloroquine is actually continued and favored and or initiated in pregnancy to try to prevent a lupus flare, right? So hydrochloroquine uh, is totally different. That's for something else. That's for other autoimmune issues, not for sickle cell. Sickle cell is hydroxyurea. Now, if you're not pregnant uh, or not a biological female, then uh, hydroxyurea is, is great. I mean, all patients with sickle cells should be offered this. It is considered a disease-modifying therapy, and, and it works. It, it, it does do its job to try to keep crisis away, and it helps prevent uh, progression of end-organ disease. So that's great. The problem is, is that historically, it's not been recommended in pregnancy because of some fears of teratogenicity, even though recent data, like one was just out in 2022 uh, of a retrospective study who, of patients who got pregnant while on hydroxyurea, actually did not demonstrate any uh, independent association with any kind of adverse pregnancy issue uh, or teratogenicity. So that is good, but it is retrospective and it's definitely not the, the de facto proof of safety, all right? So in general, that's why preconception care, once again, is important. In general, it's recommended to stop hydroxyurea if planning to conceive and then to wait three months to make sure that just all products, all byproducts, all metabolism issues are gone from this medication before starting pregnancy. However, if there's an indication that you and the hematologist and the patient agree is worth continuing, then hydroxyurea, you guessed it, can be continued with three words, shared decision-making. So if you're ever asked, can hydroxyurea be used with sickle cell in pregnancy? Well, traditionally, no. Safety data seems to say it's more reassuring than we once thought. However, in general, outside of shared decision-making and, and in using this medication in conjunction with somebody who's very comfortable with it, uh, then in general, uh, the answer is no, unless it's once again part of shared decision-making between the healthcare team and the patient. 
All right, let's finish up now with some delivery issues and questions. Remember that sickle cell is not an indication for C-section in and of itself. And if they have otherwise uncomplicated sickle cell, they can wait for elective induction at 39 weeks. If there's some other comorbid condition, then the indications for late preterm or early term delivery follow based on those usual guidelines, all right? But if the patient is otherwise uncomplicated, they can wait for induction at 39 weeks. Now, regarding mode of delivery, remember, they can still have a vaginal birth, but if they do have a C-section, there's been some debate about whether or not they need a prophylactic transfusion before the C-section, and the data has been kind of conflicting on that. The short of it is, SMFM says it, it really isn't a, is not a universal issue, um, where just because they're going to have a C-section that they require a blood transfusion, but obviously if they're uh, in anticipation of, of a postpartum hemorrhage, or obviously if they have a very uh, borderline uh, hemoglobin pre-op, then of course, I mean, give that patient some um, a prophylactic pre-op transfusion to try to prevent a crisis, all right? But once again, SMFM is very, very clear here, and it goes through that data that it says, quote, in the absence of firm data, the decision of whether or not to transfuse prior to cesarean should be individualized, end quote. So if you're expecting PPH, there's a, a hemoglobin that's like nine, and you're going to do a section on them, it is completely okay to consider a transfusion uh, to prevent a crisis, but it is not a universal issue. And now that we're talking about postpartum issues, SMFM reminds us that these patients are at increased risk for VTE. Let's say that again. They are at increased risk for VTE. So intrapartum and postpartum until they're ambulatory, uh, they should have SCDs at the least and then encourage early ambulation. And after C-section, SMFM does state that post-op prophylactic anticoagulation should be considered following cesarean delivery and given prior to hospital discharge. Now, remember, remember, words mean something. So here it says, should be considered. It doesn't say uh, is recommended. It says it should be considered. So take that for what it is. So at least SCDs, uh, and I'm in the definitely consider group because I'm going to put these patients uh, on prophylactic uh, Lovenox without a question because I don't want them to present with chest pain, shortness of breath, and then you don't know if it's a if it's a VTE issue, pulmonary embolus, or if it's acute chest syndrome. So to prevent a cloudy clinical picture down the road, absolutely, I give our post-C-section sickle cell patients prophylactic Lovenox. And even on vaginal delivery, if they have vaginal delivery, SMFM says the same thing. It's, it's you know, may be considered uh, because these patients, once again, are at a high risk of VTE, especially in the postpartum interval. I'm very conservative, and SMFM says it's okay to do um, that, quote, postpartum prophylactic anticoagulation may be considered for the postpartum patient with sickle cell disease to reduce the risk of VTE. Once again, it doesn't say strongly recommend. It says may be considered, but I'm telling you, with these patients that already have so many things going on, they are already at high risk of complications. Why give them one more thing to have to worry about? That's just my input. So yes, I place these patients on prophylactic Lovenox, and if their BMI is over 40, then I used a uh, weight-adjusted, uh, uh, which is, again, in a separate SMFM uh, c clinical consensus, and we've covered that as well. 
That separate MFM clinical consensus is clinical consensus number 51, which is thromboembolism prophylaxis for cesarean delivery. And there they get into, you know, the different regimens of VTE prophylaxis uh, based on weight, whether it's a fixed dose, like 40 milligrams of Lovenox sub-Q once a day, or an intermediate dose, which is 40 milligrams sub-Q every 12 hours. That's for obese patients. So obesity, you know, anything over, you know, a BMI of, of 30. Uh, and then they do make the, the stance that for patients with a BMI class 3 or class 3 obesity, so a BMI over 40, then definitely that intermediate dose of Lovenox should be considered. And again, that intermediate dose is 40 milligrams sub-Q every 12 hours. All right, podcast family, we have covered a lot. This new clinical consensus from SMFM, which is number 68, is coming out in the Gray Journal soon. And we covered VTE prevention, which was clinical console series number 51. We covered uh, hydroxyurea. We covered all of the ins and outs of sickle cell disease in pregnancy. So I do hope that you found this helpful. As always, we're thankful for you. and We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.